and welcome to the fourth episode of the Well Project's Leadership Exchange podcast. The Well Project's Leadership Exchange is a series connecting thought leaders in the HIV community to explore one another's work, activism, and personal experiences. This series brings together cis and trans women and others who uplift women's voices across the HIV community and dialogue. On today's episode, the Well Project's Global Ambassador and Community Advisory Board Member, Bose Oladayo, and the Well Project's Board Member, Dr. Judith Auerbach, talk about what it will take to change the world for women and girls living with HIV. Well, um, it is afternoon here, Judy, so I will say good afternoon. Good afternoon. Greetings from Abuja, Nigeria. Um, my name is Romain Bosse Oladayo, and uh, I've been a member of the Community Advisory Board of the World Project since 2011. It has been a wonderful journey for me as an advocate and an activist, and um, um, it, was, it has been a great privilege to work with the World Project so also um, giving me a lot of experiences on the on the on the job um, career wise. Um, my capacity has been built in different areas, and um, also um, going to school to give um, HIV health talk to young adolescent girls has been a wonderful experience for me. And um, like I was reading a blog this morning where somebody was sharing about our experience. Uh, you don't know how far this work goes. You don't know how far what you're doing, how it's impacting life. But believe me, you, you're impacting a lot of lives. And um, for me, that has been my passion, just to put smiles on people's faces. Uh, it has been my passion as a woman living with HIV. It has been my passion as an activist uh, that advocate for the less privileged, the voiceless, especially when it comes to do with women and vulnerable children uh, in my community. So I know I, I go to school a lot, but this lockdown and the COVID thing have really slowed me down. Um, and there are a lot of bureaucracy here. You need this protocol, that protocol for you to be able to achieve your goals sometimes is challenging in this part of the world. Uh, so I have some few questions for you, Judy, if you don't mind. Um, the first one on my list, uh, I would like you, uh, if you don't mind, um, can you tell us about yourself, the journey so far um, in the world of advocacy and um, your research for women and girls? Sure. When, it, when when I got you're yeah, going to be interviewing Judy, I was like, wow. <laughs> I said she's one woman with many acts of responsibility. And like I said to Krista, I said, I also presume her to be a no-nonsense person. Yeah. So we like to <laughs> you. <hear> you. <laughs> See, you know me. Well, thank you so much, Bose. It's really a pleasure. I was thrilled that uh, we got matchmaked together here. Um, matchmade, whatever the right word is. Um, I have to say that my favorite thing that what you just said in the introduction was about my journey so far, because I'm actually at an age where many people in my age cohort are starting to think about how to widen down. It's not really stopping the journey, but definitely winding down. So we'll come back to that. 
So I am a sociologist by training. I have a PhD from University of California, Berkeley in sociology, but I have worked mostly not in academic settings uh, for most of my career. Long story, very complicated. I will spare you all the boring details, but the gist mm -hmm. of it is I was very interested in policy and how science and policy influence each other. And through a set of circumstances from teaching for a couple of years to then getting a fellowship that put me in the United States Congress as a social scientist working with a member of Congress to help um, try to influence some of the policy discussions with social science research, but also for me as a social scientist to better understand how policy actually gets made, not just how we theorize about it in the academy, but to actually watch the dirty work of making policy at the federal level of the US government. And in the course of that work, it really I solidified my interest in this um, kind of focusing on the nexus of science and policy, where the two meet. I've always been uh, a feminist. I came up in graduate school in the early days of feminist scholarship. So I think of myself as a feminist sociologist, meaning that I pay a lot of attention to gender, as you know, and how gender is a very significant organizing principle in all societies everywhere. And um, as a feminist sociologist, my policy considerations and concerns are about particularly how women and girls fare, but also how all people based on their gender, which has become you know, very complex now. We have sex, we have sexuality, we have sexual identity, we have orientations, we have our preferred partnerships, we have our gender norms and stigma and all that stuff. So it's a very complicated field, but my interest remains in how all of that plays out. Um, and uh, particularly with HIV. So I came to HIV, I guess in about 1990. And I cut my teeth, as we say, in HIV from a very weird angle. I was not an activist. I had not even trained in medical sociology but I was working for an organization that represents social scientists, all the professional societies like political science and sociology and psychology and so on. And the, um, it was a time when we had very little information about sexual behaviors of, Amer in this case, it was Americans, adults and adolescents that would help inform who was really at risk for HIV amongst other things. And so um, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health here in the US, which is the big funder of research, wanted to fund and had reviewed and approved for funding two surveys of American sexual behavior, one for adults, one for adolescents. And um, the president at the time and his administration effectively stopped them and said they were prurient, you know, they were kind of looking at nasty things. And so it was from that experience of being at an organization which was trying to defend the researchers and the research and make sure that federal money, government money could support this kind of research because it would tell us a lot that was relevant to HIV that I began my, my trajectory in HIV. And in the course of that work, I started to meet and get very engaged with the activists, as well as scientists outside my own discipline. So as I keep saying, I'm a social scientist, but I've always worked with basic biomedical scientists, you know, laboratory scientists, all the way through clinical epidemiology, social science and community and advocacy. So I've had a bunch of different positions. Again, I don't want to run through my whole biography because I'm pretty old, but I've worked inside and outside government. So I, I actually ended up working at the NIH for years, 
I worked in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, which meant I was in the executive office of the president of the United States, who was Clinton, Bill Clinton at the time. And I was heading the social science uh, division there. And I've worked at uh, community-based organizations like the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. So I've had this interesting array of official jobs from government, non-governmental organizations and university and community, uh, which is pretty unique. Um, and most recently, I, I left about nine years ago, I stopped working for an organization and started working for myself. I kind of decided I wanted to try being an independent consultant. And that's what I've been doing ever since, working out of my home. Um, and I work for many of the people I used to be employed by. So I consult with the NIH and I consult with the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. And I can have consulted with some other national and uh, nonprofit organizations. Um, and I have an adjunct appointment at the University of California, San Francisco. So I have an academic standing with a university. It's part time. And I mostly mentor and try to help kind of pull the careers of early career and mid-career scientists and connect community people to the research enterprise. So sorry that was so long-winded, but <laughs> there's 40 years in there. Wow. <laughs> 40. 40. Yeah, years. I'm probably older than you think. Oh, but you, you don't look it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, 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 I was, um, I was 40. 45 this year. Ah. If you say 40 years, then I was like, you were we. When you started working, that's amazing. Um, you know, I told one of my colleagues here in Nigeria, I said, this woman is a woman that has so many hats on her head. And um, I really, really am inspired by you. And I believe that um, a lot of women outside there who are watching this video uh, will be inspired by you, especially the young, uh, young women and girls outside there. And um, it's amazing, you know, um, your, your wealth of, of, of knowledge on the job is, is amazing. And Thank you. I would say the World Project are very, very fortunate to have somebody like you as a member of the Board of Directors. And well, thank you I for saying that. part of the world, there's a lot of bureaucracy, especially when it comes to do with the government agency and parasitals. There's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of challenges. And um, that is why you say most people want to I want to go study abroad. I want to do this. Everybody wants to go study abroad. And you know, for me, initially when I, when I was told I'm going to be interviewing Judy, I'm like, what? But this me, I'm just an ordinary unschooled woman. But she's a professor. She's a professor. How can I interview her? But um, I am glad. And I want to say thank you for giving me this wonderful opportunity to get to know you the more, to get to know this uh, woman that I presume to be a no-nonsense person. Uh, well, my question... No, Bo Bose, if I may, if you don't mind, I have to say, you know, I feel similarly talking to you because what you do at a community level and internationally is really, really important and special and oftentimes against many odds. 
and the power that you have as a community advocate and activist and to connect to all the all people around the world, including me, takes a lot of internal strength and a lot of fortitude. And, you you know, don't undersell yourself. (laughs) You were a powerful person. You know, for me, I I don't feel uh, like I told uh, Gina some some times ago. I said, I don't think I'm giving the much I want to give give to my community and the World Project. And I know that um, initially when I would join the World Project, I was told by the then executive uh, director uh, of the work project that I should send in my CV. And I said, see, my CV is nothing to write home about. <laughs> so he said, don't ever underestimate yourself. Correct. And my second question for you, Judy, is um, what work or research are you most proud of? You know, in all these 40 years and all this wealth of experience and knowledge, can you tell us which one you are most proud of as wow. a researcher? Yeah, it's hard to say, partly because I haven't done that much research myself. Most of my career has been trying to facilitate the possibility of other people doing the kind of research they should. So it's helping develop and maintain the research agenda to be inclusive of the kinds of things that you or I might think are important, like women and girls, or like social science in my case. So I've actually, over my career, I write a lot. I do publish a lot. They're mostly analytic pieces, and um, which is fun because I get to say what I think. But I haven't done that much original research myself over my career. But the, one, the project, that, from a research point of view, that I'm probably most proud of is the one that I did a few years ago with AIDS United, which was the first project talking to and thinking about United States women at risk for HIV, what they knew and what they thought about PrEP. And we did this series of focus group studies, part of which was published. So that was exciting too, is to work with a a national organization, not an academic group, but these were community Mm -hmm. folk to run a study, analyze the data and write it up for publication as well as presentation. We actually had a late breaker at the International AIDS Conference, which is no little deal. But the project itself was really about learning from the voices and the lived experience of women themselves. We conducted a bunch of focus groups across the country. Um, And uh, we started those focus groups right before um, Truvada for PrEP was approved for pre-exposure prophylaxis in the United States. And then we did a second set right afterwards. And the point was to say, you know, there've been these big trials with women uh, around pre-exposure prophylaxis, but none of them included US women because our incidence rates are very low relative to other countries where you'd have to have huge studies to find an effect. It's, you know, I think you understand the science of this. But what that means is that nobody pays attention to U.S. women and girls because they think, oh, you're a small proportion of the epidemic and the incidence rate overall is not that high. It's always been about 20 percent of the total epidemic or the the proportion living with HIV. And um, people like me felt like, well, just because we're a smaller number doesn't mean we don't count. And, you you know, we really do need to understand if there's going to be a promising prevention technology may not be for everybody. But we kind of have to know, is this something that our, you know, women in our country would be interested in and would use? 
So that was a project that was really great. We worked with community-based organizations. So part of why else I loved it is because it was very much uh, an example of real community-based participatory research. Community people facilitated the focus groups. We had authors, the co-authors who were from community and so on. So that, that uh, women in prep study is probably my favorite research project. On the policy front, I guess I've been involved in a number of um, big initiatives and probably the one I'm proudest of is being one of the persons who originated the campaign for a national aid strategy in the United States. I mean, you in Nigeria probably had one before we did in the United States, but until 20, uh, 2010, the US did not have a national aid strategy. And so that was another one that started with community, but it was bringing together researchers, community members, uh, industry, philanthropy, you know, all the stakeholders in HIV, obviously mm -hmm. networks of people living with HIV, mm -hmm. nurses, doctors, everybody, service providers to say, let's, let's promote a national aid strategy and try to get whoever gets elected as president in uh, 20, 2008 to, to commit to it. And, President Obama was elected and he committed to it and it took a year or so for them to write the thing and, and we had a national aid strategy. So working on a whole campaign that was this real like social movement to engage stakeholders in something that was gonna really make a difference for the country and its response, I'm very proud of that as well. And part of, in all of these things, you know, it's, I am trying to make sure that attention is paid to women and girls and as a social scientist, I'm always an outsider in the biomedical world. So a lot of what I have to do is keep reminding whoever I'm talking with about the importance of social factors as they influence epidemics, social factors as they influence the response to epidemics, and um, how they affect people's daily lives that then have implications for whether they can stay safe or not. Wow, that's so interesting. And, um, you know, because um, women uh, constitute the almost more than half of the population of persons living with HIV globally. And um, like we all know, there are a lot of challenges around women. I remember when I was assessing my treatment in um, um, the University Teaching Hospital in Lagos, I worked closely with the professor. So I was being encouraged um, to encourage women to take um, the pap smear test uh, because um, you know the cervical cancer among women living with HIV was a bit high at that point. So um, I know that um, in this part of the world here in sub-Saharan African country, I know that some African country were part of that research uh, when it was presented in South Africa and. Um, which um, I hope and I pray that there will be a breakthrough on the for women. There are a lot of uh, new developed um, mode of preventive um, HIV among women because we are not. We know that um, it was actually in that conference I got to know that wow, women uh, my anatomy makes me more vulnerable to the virus as a woman and yeah. as a young outside there, and uh, that is what really even after that conference. I have this um, energy, this, this, this passion to go more into the community and the schools because um, there was a time I bought a taxi and the man, who, the, the driver picked the car 
and he was talking to the woman and he said he's going to kill the woman. I'm like, hello, <laughs> kill someone, why? And he was so agitated. I said, can you pack and let's talk, you know? So before you get us into an accident. He actually told me this, that the woman, 16 years old son, impregnated his own younger, his elder brother's daughter, a 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I, I just have this passion to reach out to that young girl and women at the community level. And for you who is doing the academic work, I say thank you so much. And uh, we really appreciate all your knowledge and your contribution so far in this um, journey of, um, of HIV. Well, you know, both say it's, um, sorry, I've got allergies. Um, you know, thinking about what you do and thinking about what the Well Project is all about, which is how we've come together, um, you know, over the years, you're a good example of the trajectory that we're trying to facilitate for women who connect to the Well Project and its resources. So it starts with education and knowledge and you're learning things, but you're also bringing your own lived experience. So that's knowledge you're bringing to the whole discussion. And then for people like me, if I can help contribute to the scientific knowledge that then you can take and use and translate however you wish. So that's the education and the information. And then with that, you develop a certain empowerment to Mm -hmm. then uh, communicate and connect to other women like yourself. So creating Mm -hmm. a network and a community of Mm -hmm. women who can support each other and share more information and knowledge and use the resources Mm -hmm. that maybe the Well Project make available as well. And then that community and that knowledge create a a capacity to be a real advocate for yourself initially, Mm -hmm. and then for your community as well, and for the larger community. And you, I think, embody that trajectory. I mean, maybe you had the activism in you before I you know, we ever met you. You probably did. You have to be a certain kind of person to be able to do the kind of work you do. But I think that's that sort of combination of information that's bi-directional, uh, knowledge, experience, education. It feeds into then what we think about is important to study and to, to write about. And then to use that to build a community and to connect to all kinds of people like us mm-hmm. um, and then to become real serious and significant advocates for your community, which you're obviously committed to doing. Um, so I really admire the work that you do. I can't even imagine all the, you know, you talk about the bureaucracy there, but there's lots of other issues which we may want to yes. talk about. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, um, Judy, in your opinion, what do you think uh, is the biggest obstacle for combating the HIV epidemic among uh, women and girls? And what do you think is um, is the key um, is the key to address addre- in addressing this obstacle? Because, like, I, I will go back to what I said earlier on, women. Um, um, the statistic shows here that um, 58.4 or thereabouts of women are affected. That is more than half of the population of uh, the 1.9 million persons living with HIV in Nigeria. So I know that women are most vulnerable and there are so many um, challenges around us. So what can you, what are, what is the biggest, um, um, the, uh, the, the, um, like I said, your opinion and um, what do you think 
is the biggest obstacle in combating the HIV epidemic among women and girls. And also yeah. what is the key to addressing this obstacle? It's easier to say what the obstacle is, but in a word, patriarchy. So I think the biggest obstacle to addressing the epidemic anywhere among women and girls are very traditional norms about gender and power relations, which uh, imbue men in most societies with um, very institutionalized power that they then internalize culturally and cultures support that kind of power and uh, very much power over women, which I think has been you know, the culprit and all, all things that uh, impact women pretty negatively. But I think for HIV, it's, it's pretty pronounced that for me, I, I would say the biggest challenge is patriarchy. And it's, it's looking at how um, that operates institutionally, as I said, you know, where men have more power than women in most societies and maintain that power in whatever ways they can. Um, and how that power then gets translated into human relationships and internalized mm -hmm. by young men and boys and by girls themselves and women um, to keep kind of maintaining that imbalance. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's, that's a big thing to chew off. It's a big thing to say, you know, we can do something about patriarchy, but I think we've seen over time that we can. And the, the ways to combat the um, negative parts of, patriarchy, which basically patriarchy is negative, if you ask me, um, have to do with women like you and like me and others who uh, find some strength in what we do, find people who can support us in what we do, um, speak up to power sometimes, even at a risk to ourselves, but really uh, kind of calling the question and saying, this doesn't have to be always the way it is. And we need to be able to find ways to make changes and we have to be at the table. We have to have a voice and we'll, we'll demand it if we have to, if it's not given to us. And um, yeah. we have to stick with it, you know, through thick and thin. Um, so, you know, it's, it, that's too simple an answer to what to do about patriarchy, but it's also everything like electing more women officials, which I think has been happening over time, seeing more women leaders in all facets of life. Um, and, uh, looking for ways to promote um, services and policies and attitudes as well that are much more egalitarian between women and men. Oh, wow. That's, that's so incredible because, you know, in this part of the world, the Africa in particular, my region, they give more value to the men than the women. Mm -hmm. I know I've been in some training on the gender equality um, for women. And, um, you know, also bringing uh, the science of HIV to the grassroots level, to the level of understanding of women. I know I had this training with TAG in South Africa in 2000 and 2004 or five thereabouts, and uh, where we're thought about um, the treatment, research, and what have you. And I have, when I came back to Nigeria, I literally break down that to the level of the layman in the, at the community level, at the grassroots community level, bringing the science of HIV to their level of understanding. And you know, that is the fun part, you know, where you yeah. 
spread this thing is, is fun when you do it in the community. And um, But you right know, now, okay, the, the science has to, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but the science has to be relevant too. And so part of what people like you and I do is try to make sure that women and girls are part of the science okay. and that the science is reflective of your lived experience as a woman living with HIV, uh, whether that's your physical experience, your psychological experience, your social relationships. Those are all very important to ensure are part of the scientific knowledge base that then gets communicated to communities, but also informed by communities. Thank you so much. Um, my, my fourth question is this. Um, do you have a specific tool that you you can rec that you recommend? I would say, Judy, do you have a specific tool that you recommend for CAP members, also for other emerging leaders in uh, um, in, the, in the in the HIV field to help manage heavy responsibility that we carry? If you don't mind, I'm going to turn this back to you and say, what are the heavy burdens that you carry? Like, and tell us. Tell us about, tell me about what it is that you're carrying every day when you do the work that you do or live the life that you live. For, for, for me, one is the resource. The resource in, um, in terms of the tool, the working tools, the mobilization. I knew uh, during the lockdown, I was part of the community pharmacist where I go to clinics, some clinic here in Abuja, I get the list of those women who have not come for clinic, who have not assessed treatment because of the lockdown, who cannot come to the clinic to assess treatment. So what I do basically is I get their contact from the hospital, the hospital call them, then I get the medication I take to their houses. So for me, I travel by bike for hours. Because of the lockdown, there was no vehicle. So I have to be on a public bike for hours to reach out to a woman at that community just to pass her hair to her. And at the course of this, I met some women who are passing through a lot. The economic challenge is huge. Uh, will you call it the social economic challenge now? Because um, I met a, a woman who literally stopped her ARVs by herself without any consultation, and she was practically dying. She has failed, the, the treatment has failed, and nobody even knew, because she couldn't have access to mm -hmm. go out to the clinic because of the economic challenge she was having. She was having financial challenges. You go to some homes, they'll tell you that you brought, you brought medication. What am I going to eat? You're asking me to take this medicine. So what am I going to feed with? So that has been a big challenge. And I knew that some years back, um, I worked with an NGO called Good Neighbors Foundation, and we're getting funds from Chevron. It's not directly from Chevron. It was Chevron Peer Educator that come together and raise money. So we, we they provide scholastic um, educational support for the orphans and vulnerable children. And I did economic empowerment for like 80 women. So you have 20 women in badges that come to take this revolving loan. Do you mm -hmm. know that, Judy, 
at the point those loans, they, they never came back to us. Mm. And it just went down the drain. So they have uh, these social economic challenges they go through with financial challenges. How would you put that? Is the social economic challenges. And like I said, I deal with women who have not been in the four walls of, of a classroom before. So th that is one of the, the body they carry. Women are the ones who fend for their family here in Africa. If you go to the market, mostly you see women. They are the ones hustling. They are the ones that goes to the market to carry pepper on their head. They are the ones that wash people's feet. When you go into the, the, the fruit market, you come out dirty. There's a, there, there are women outside that wash your food just to give them little money so that they can feed their kids and their family. So that has been one challenge. And it's also affecting um, um, the, the progress in HIV uh, treatment because you find out some people are not really adhering to their medication because they can't feed. I need to take this medication, but I need to eat well for me to take it. And for it to work well on me, I need to be uh, nutritionally um, healthy in terms of nutrition. So that is one major burden I feel women carry a lot. And I know that uh, during this, uh, this stay, stay, at, stay well at home with the work project, uh, we were taught on how to um, do a sheet of uh, like an account balance, how you manage your finance and what have you. In this part of the world, it does not cost a cost. You have large women who are not educated, just few numbers of women here are educated. Like they can be their just okay, I know what I'm doing, but a lot of local women who go out there to source for resources to take care of their families. So and that has been one big major challenge in this part. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm not gonna pretend I have tools to to really solve those kinds of huge challenges. Um the one thing that I can say that um I think you're probably well aware of is the importance of telling those stories. I don't mean to be trite about it at all, but if if you can convey an experience that you directly have, I'm not there, I'm not in those villages, I'm not experiencing them firsthand, but if you are, and women like you are able to do that in settings where there are people listening who do have their hands on money and resources and things, that, mm -hmm. that's a tool in a sense. So, for example, you know, if you are communicating with other women through the Well Project and the, the community that you've developed there, the bloggers uh, and others, and you can share these stories, but also you tell me these stories, you tell other people's stories who sit at these tables. Mm -hmm. For example, I, was I am a member of the Scientific Advisory Board of the PEPFAR program, the U.S. Global AIDS program. And we were just having a conversation about the impact of COVID on HIV services, mm -hmm. you know, like which are relevant to PEPFAR. And there were a couple of women, as it turns out, also from the African continents, from different countries from yours, who were talking about very specific experiences of women in their communities or what they were hearing from clinicians or service providers or community advocates. And they told those stories in this environment where there were very powerful people sitting around who can affect what mm -hmm. kinds of funding flows and for what purposes. So I know it's it's a little distant, but I think it, it always keeps coming back to me uh, to the importance of having a voice 
you're representing a lot of other voices. But if they, I mean, the biggest tool they have is you. And if you are in, if you're able to be in places and you don't get too tired and you get the moral support you need and financial support you need to keep doing what you do, you're so valuable because many of us are sitting in these places that we can influence what people in power can do. But if we don't have the firsthand experience ourselves, it's very inauthentic for us to say, oh, you know, there's this problem here and there's these women there. But you're you're authentic. You're you're representing the people in your community. You're a member of that community. And so any opportunities that we can find together to elevate your voice on behalf of them is probably one of the greatest tools we have. Well, I know, I know it sounds very distant, but no, 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 you don't. And um you 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 actually didn't stand the distance. Um I can actually, um, you are a leader that shows uh, empathy. So uh, as a leader, I believe we need to show more empathy and have integrity. For me, that has been my worst word, integrity and show empathy. And um, Yeah, I think a part of that is knowing what you don't know and being able to admit what you don't know and knowing who to go to who does know <laughs> and yeah. trusting them and allowing them to have the floor. So a lot of what I do as a, I appreciate you calling me a leader, you know, women are, we're always very self-effacing. We don't believe it, you know, oh, poor me, you know, little me, I'm just this little girl, you know, it was kind of crazy. But um, one of the things I do try to do now that I recognize that I, I am seen as a leader um, is to leverage my position. So because I am invited uh, to sit at tables where, big decisions can get made or I can influence a research agenda or I can influence funding or something like that. I try to leverage that position and bring in and bring up um, other people, usually women people, because we're still very underrepresented in the conversations around HIV in many settings. Um, and I'm looking as I get older for younger folks who can, I can help elevate up so that I can at some point retire or do a little bit less at least. Um, so using any opportunity that I have to bring in new voices and to give them the floor to step back and not always have to talk and not always have to show how smart we are, you know, and things like that. That's, I think, also an important part of leadership. Mm. Thank you. Um, for me, it is a great honor <laughs> having this conversation with you, Judy. My... Final question is this, um, it's not really a question. I would say, um, like I said earlier on, when I went to read your profile, I'm like, wow, this man has achieved a lot. And now you, feel, you just told me that you've been on this field for 40 years, it's amazing. It's amazing, like I, I, I would say you are my, you are my Amazon. <laughs> you are my Amazon, the warrior woman. And um, uh, Judy, seeing all your achievements over the years, over the past years, what will you tell a girl in that remote village and women who have never been in the four walls of the classroom listening to you right now? What will you tell them? Your words of encouragement. Um, I would tell them to have faith in themselves 
to um, not give up on their hopes and dreams. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, to find, seek out, or take advantage if presented with women like you who mm -hmm. know their world, know their life, and mm -hmm. are in the world in other ways that you can represent them and bring them up and support them. But the, the really importance of looking for people who are like yourself, who you can um, trust and you can get information from and who are mm -hmm. going to support you. That I think is one of the most important things, wow. but mainly to have faith in yourself, even when it looks like things are not going your way. And I know that's not easy to do, but I think it's mm -hmm. for a lot of women, our success is in the fact that we were belligerent or we were able to say, I'm not going to let that stop me. You know, you can try as hard as you want, but I'm not going to let that stop me. I have every right to be who I want to be in this world. Um, and I'm going to stand up for it. So there's, there's often risks, but so long as there's people around you who know you and can support you and you know who those people are, you're probably going to have a better chance. Well, thank you so much, Judy. Um, for me, I think um, it's more of, a, of what you first said, they should never give up and they should have hope. Yeah. And, um, I remember vividly of recent, I was called at home by one of my colleagues. They, they said they have a case they want me to handle for them. And um, there's this young woman, a single parent, who who just probably, she has been on treatment over the years. And um, I think because of her HIV status, she lost her job. Mm. And um, she has been finding it difficult to get a job. Um, so she was contemplating in committing suicide. She wants to take her life. That um, she is the one that, um, she's the only one that provides for her family. She has a, a child she needs to take care of. And this word that you just said now is what I actually told her before I now link her up with, uh, with an NGO in Lagos called PATA, Positive Action for Treatment Assets. And um, they were able to, I think it's a mental health issue. A lot of women out there that are going through this, especially women living with HIV, are going through a lot of uh, mental health challenges. So, but today she's stable. She she she, she she's able to get a job. The colleagues of to say she have gotten a job, and for me that 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 is that is awesome. You know, yes. women should never, women young girls should not give up on their hopes. You know, uh, my my ten years old daughter, her name is Megan, and um, I asked Megan, Megan, uh, what would you like to be when you grow? up? Because actually, when I opened your profile, I called her and I said, let's read this together. I oh. said, this is a woman. She was once a girl. I said, she was once a girl like you. And I believe if I could have the opportunity to ask her parents today, what did Judy say she wants to be when she grew up? You know? And she's impacting a lot of lives. So myself and Megan, she read, and there are some grammar she can't pronounce, I will help her to pronounce it. In fact, it was Megan that prompted me to go and see what a sociologist is all about. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> she asked me, mommy, what is sociologist? I said, well, let's Google what a sociologist is. 
And that is when I said, wow, she's a woman that has many hats on her head. And Megan said she wants to become a doctor. Long before that, she wants to become the military personnel. And, um, and I asked her one question. I said, Megan, in five years' time, where do you, what, where do you see yourself? You know, in five years' time, I assume she should be like a Simone in age. That's Krista's daughter. I'm probably thinking of going into the university to study this and this. Do you know what she told me? What? <laughs> she said, in five years, and she answered me just straight without blabbing. In five years, by the grace of God, I will not be in this country. <laughs> oh, I'm like, oh, whoops. <laughs> I'm glad you could see the humor in that. <laughs> I said, so where will you be? She mentioned the country she wants to go to. And I'm like, so what will you be doing there? She said, I'll study. I'll go to school. I'll go to university. And it's amazing if a 10 years old is having that at the back of her mind. And um, But, you know, I think we all know that what we thought at 10 years old, we probably became, I wanted to be everything. I wanted to be a fire person. I wanted to be a mail deliverer. I wanted to be an architect. I never would have said sociologist. I didn't know what that was. But you know, one thing that's really important to say, if it isn't obvious uh, for a woman like me, for, for mm. from you understanding a woman like me, mm. when you read my bio or you get my CV or my resume, it starts at a certain point in time. And what came before it, even up through my undergraduate college, actually my graduate college uh, education, were all manner of other jobs, like from babysitting from the time I was 11 years old, child minding, through restaurant cleaning up and working, preparing food. I was a house cleaner for two years. I cleaned somebody's house and cooked for their family. Yeah, I worked in offices, you know, copying things and making appointments back in the old days before we had a lot of computers. Um, So there's a lot of regular jobs and work that someone like me has done that maybe nobody would ever know about if you just start with, oh, she's this very accomplished social scientist. You know, I had to work my way through school. I paid my own way. I had multiple jobs while I was in college and graduate school. I had loans to pay off when I finished graduate school. So, you know, there's there's that whole other part of experience. You are an amazing woman. <laughs> but I realized, you know, we don't often get to tell those stories, you know, and um, that's an important part of our backgrounds. People make assumptions about who you are based on who you are at this moment. And they don't know the half of it. You know, I was a scrawny kind of dark white person. I got a lot of grief for being darker than the other white kids in my school. I had glasses when I was five and a half years old, which back in my time, it was terrible to be a little girl with glasses. You got knocked around all the time. And uh, I was scrawny and, you know, people thought my mother didn't feed me. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff in one's background that isn't known, but it all informs where you get your strength, the core strength that you get, how you maintain hope. I mean, I was near poverty more than once in my life, but how you maintain hope and um, resolve to carry on because, you know, you know, first of all, you love life. I love life. And second of all, you can see other people who've gone through a lot and eventually come out the other end and are, you know, doing pretty well. So I just wanted to be able to share some of that because I realize one never talks about these things or one doesn't get asked about these things. Mm -hmm. That's so true. And, um, 
But I have a question for you. Speaking of of your conversation with Megan, I remember you did an interview with the Well Project, I think 2015, and you were asked a question about what's the one place you'd most like to visit in this lifetime? And you said South Korea. And there was no follow up. So I want to know why South Korea? Uh, Well, um, for me, um, I think their culture and their. I love nature a lot. I love nature. And, um, you know, when I look at um, the poverty level there, the, the exposure, the, 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 the way of life in that place. Somebody told me I was crazy, you know. Why South Korea? I said, I just, I don't know. I just have passion for that, um, that region. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the nature. I see sometimes when I watch their movie, I see nature. I just love nature. I love the nature. I love their culture. You know that 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 that's just it. And it got to a point. Uh, there's this um, Korea Cultural Center in my on my street where the, my office is in Abuja. I go to the Korea Cultural Center. It's like their mini embassy or thereabout. So I attend some of their. They do monthly. They do festival, different festival monthly. So I just go there and just try to understand their language. So I was even at home. I started teaching Megan this Oma means mom. Uh, Kumao means thank you. Oraboye means my brother. <laughs> pretty good. Means coming. So I started, I just I just have passion for it for, 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 for that um, that region. Nothing That's great um, to hear. Can I ask you? Can I ask you another question? Do you mind? Yes, please. Um, so, how did you first find out about the Well Project? What connected you to the Well Project? Well, actually, it's it's it's, it's funny and it's strange. Um, I used to work with an NGO called Opal Wide Nigeria, and um, I started working with Opal Wide in two thousand and three, uh, two thousand and two, two thousand and three. And um, I was uh, a volunteer before I became um, their staff. I coordinate support groups and I established support groups. They were having they were having two support groups when I joined them. And I was able to establish like 15 support groups in different communities in Lagos. So um, we were on a project being funded by USAID PEPA. And um, when the project rolled out, they register another organization called Olive Leaf Charity Foundation. So because I was on that project, I was moved out of Opal Ride in 2009. You know, I was a trained counselor, so I was stationed in the teaching hospital in Lagos, where I did advocacy to different departments, and I go to different departments to give health talk in the morning. I resumed there by 6.30. By 7, I'll give health talk in the GOPD and the eye clinic. So I also did advocacy to the gynecology department. So they gave us a small place to build a water cabin where we cancel women. I'll give health talk to women who are coming for ANC. And then um, it got to a point the contract finished and I was at home doing nothing, you know? Um, I was just at home, no hope of getting any job or whatever. And somebody called me. He said, is this person? 
it's a it's an international number. No, a Nigerian called me actually, an activist who is an advocate. Uh, his name is Mayo Wajwa. He called me and said, Bosse, are you available to go to US for a meeting? I'm like, US? <laughs> <laughs> what meeting? She said, the Globalization Women Tax Force meeting that they'll be contacting you. Will you be available? I said, well, I don't know. I depend on when this meeting is coming up. Then he, he had um, Chalene called me. Chalene was the... Uh, right, Chalene, when she was ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Chalene Eden. So yeah. she called and said, are you bossy or like that? I said, yes. She said, um, she's calling from the World Project. They are holding a meeting. They want me to participate that I've been recommended by Mario Wadjo. And to me, I'm like, what? <laughs> US? Okay. So uh, that was how I participated in that meeting. She said, send me your CV. And I said, my CV is nothing to write home about. I'm just an ordinary unschooled woman who have passion for what she does. And um, she said, you should never underestimate yourself. But do you know how many people recommend you to the World Project? So she mentioned um, um, Sarah. Sarah was the executive director of ITPC, International Treatment Preparedness Coalition. So I met Sarah once in Uganda because I was a, I was a CROP for six years. Community, I was a community review panel for ITPC, ICW. So I go to Uganda to develop call for proposals, and I go back to review proposals for West Africa. Then I also did m and for them, the NGO that got the grant. So I go to visit this NGO to ensure that they are really utilizing the grant to what um, they've been given to do. So uh, that was how I got to know about the World Project, and I attended the meeting in um, New York. So uh, um, after then, I became a, a family of the World Project. That's how I got to know the World Project. Well, it's a good thing, and we're so lucky to have you as part of our little community. And you've Thank been with you. us for a long time. I say us because I'm on the board, as, as you probably yes. mentioned at the beginning. And I'm uh, very committed to the Well Project, and it's it's just great. I think you know to to see you over all these years, and um, I hope that you found that what we make available is of use to you and your community. It seems like it is. Yeah. So let me just say what a deep pleasure it's been to see you again, Bose, and to talk with you. And I understand you're having some technical difficulty at your end now with the sound, mm -hmm. so I'm talking more than I otherwise would. Um, but it's really been an absolute pleasure. I so admire you and the work that you do. And I'm here for you, you know, if you ever need to just talk or check in, that's what I'm here for. That's what the Well Project's here for. Um, and I really look forward to seeing you sometime soon and hope that things improve immediately and you're in Legos there for you, but also generally, you know, under this COVID pandemic on top of the HIV epidemic. So keep up the good fight and uh, really it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the fourth episode of the Well Project's Leadership Exchange Podcast. You can watch and listen to more episodes on our website, thewellproject.org backslash exchange. 
please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on social media. And please don't forget to share.